This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then I spoke with Nicholas Douse, founder of Honeyfingers, an urban beekeeping collective in Melbourne. Nick spoke with me about the fascinating hive mind of honeybees, his experience with urban beekeeping in Melbourne, and how Australia's honeybee populations and beekeeping practices compare with the rest of the world. We also discuss the links between modern beekeeping and modernist architecture, as well as the special significance of World Bee Day, which is May 20. Then, finally, Dr Chloe Ward, a research officer at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT, joined me to talk about the latest in UK politics. We talk about the Tory government's controversial handling of the coronavirus pandemic, as well as the performance of Labor leader Keir Starmer. And I'm now pleased to welcome uh, to the show Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. Hi there, Ben. Hi, Amy. Yes, finally with you. Sorry about that. That's okay. We got there in the end, um, and it meant I got to play some of my favourite songs, so it's all good. Oh, good. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was one, having yeah. a little dance behind the panel. That's what the joy of um, having a very quiet time here means that you can dance and not many people see you. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I really mind. Now, let's get to um, some federal politics. One of the uh, issues that's really a front of mind at the moment and is making the news is around trade and tensions that have really officially risen now between Australia and China, with um, China now uh, putting some serious kind of penalties, tariffs on our barley, um, which is uh, really causing a lot of consternation amongst farmers and also amongst the coalition government. Yes, uh, there's officially a trade war on with China at the moment. Uh, China has levied an 80% anti-dumping tariff on Australian barley, which is a serious uh, export. I think it's a couple of billion dollars a year worth of exports. Um, and this is in relation to a number of Australian actions uh, that China is retaliating for. So they, they claim that we've been dumping barley uh, cheaply. That's a, Dumping is a sort of trade term. It means we're selling the commodity cheaper than it should be sold on the international market. Uh, and so they've retaliated with an 80% tariff. Of course, no one thinks it's just about trade. This is also about the tensions between Australia and China, firstly over security issues, things like banning the phone giant Huawei from uh, bidding for Australia's 5G telecommunications network, and also, of course, about Scott Morrison's call uh, for China to be investigated over the origin of coronavirus. Exactly. And we have seen some um, coalition government uh, ministers and uh, particularly looking at, say, David Littleproud, the agriculture minister, coming out and saying, quote, there's no trade war. In fact, even today, I think you have seen that there's increased demand for iron ore out of China. So Australia is trying to play down some of these tensions, which essentially the coalition government has kind of certainly not really helped. Um, Over the weekend, we saw on Insiders Simon Birmingham uh, stating publicly that he had reached out to his counterpart in China and that that person had not called him back, uh, (laughs) which is really not how you conduct diplomacy on the top-rating politics show in Australia. Um, So I, I guess the coalition government's in a bit of a pickle as well because they certainly haven't been making things easy. 
No, no, absolutely. I mean, Australia has played a significant role in ramping up tensions with China, um, and I think China is just showing us now that it has some levers that it can use uh, with us as well. So, um, you know, uh, barley is a fairly minor export from Australia to China. There are far bigger exports, like you mentioned, iron ore, where China could really hurt Australia. And then we've got education, which is a massive export, which is in trouble for a whole bunch of other reasons. So uh, Australia is finding that line to walk between uh, the alliance of the United States and our economic relationship with China. That, that's becoming a, a harder uh, act to balance on there. Yes, exactly. And uh, it was interesting to see the National Farmers Federation CEO uh, come out today to talk about how this is going to be affecting farmers. Um, of course, farmers don't really need any more issues. They've had enough to contend with, with drought and bushfire and so many other ch- you know, business challenges. Um, but one of the interesting elements is that uh, China is Australia's largest barley market with almost 50% of our barley, which is worth $917 million, being exported to China every year. So although it's not um, our largest market, it still will have quite a substantial impact on farmers who are often um, people conducting small businesses. Well, good stats there, Amy. That's uh, always good research here on, this, on your show. <laughs> Um, look, yeah, absolutely. Of course, it's going to affect farmers. And, um, you know, just at a time when agriculture was recovering too and we've got some rain and down the east coast and it, we've had a, a bit of a, a wet autumn, um, you know, suddenly we run into this kind of trouble. Um, so, and, and, of course, this is not, I think, the, the only thing that, that China can do. So I think um, it'll be very much in the government's... Um, the, the ball is in the government's court to try and do something about this situation. Um, overnight, we saw the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, give a very important speech uh, where he said that he would open China up to the investigation um, and where he pledged a huge amount of foreign aid, particularly to African countries, to help with their fight against COVID-19. Um, and when it made a very strong play to multilateralism in terms of um, the international response to COVID. Uh, and I think that's a very interesting play by the Chinese government, very much um, a very big contrast to the erratic behaviour of President Donald Trump in the United States. Yes, well, Donald Trump has been undermining the World Health Organisation uh, at every turn, essentially. And um, there, there is a World Health Assembly meeting, which is the key decision-making body of the WHO. And uh, this is kind of the, a really important um, conference or summit. And one conference paper that had been filed and essentially led by Australia was this uh, push for an independent inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus and how it's been handled. And uh, as you may recall, when we were discussing this a few weeks ago, Australia announced their intention to push for this inquiry before they had actually garnered any support from other nations, which is a little bit different in the in the approach than the usual kind of way things would be handled. But at this point, um, that, that deal or that proposal now has 122 um, countries supporting it, including members of the EU uh, and the African groups, the UK, Russia, Canada, um, New Zealand. But it's interesting because um, this is what has caused a lot of the tensions to, I guess, boil over to a point that um, has created these actions and these serious uh, actual practical consequences. Um, but 
I mean, China is really agreeing to something what that the World Health Organization should and would always do at the end or towards the, the end of a pandemic, which is to look into what happened and to learn from um, the situation that they found themselves in. This is what's happened with Ebola. It's what's happened with Zika. It is a very normal thing to do. So why is there this tension and why are there these two kind of different independent inquiries being proposed? Um, well, my understanding um, is that it would be the same inquiry, Amy, but you might be, um, you might, we might have different information there. It, no, it, is, it definitely is different. But this is the independent one, right? Independent to the WHO. Yeah, it um, would be. It would be coordinated by the WHO, but it wouldn't be necessarily only by the WHO. It's certainly something of a diplomatic triumph for Foreign Minister Maurice Payne to get all of the countries on board with this. Um, and I think it shows that she's a very effective operator. Um, she's long been one of the most accomplished front benches in the coalition, um, and, and I think this is a real triumph for her. Um, we, we've played something of a kind of double game with the, with the WHO in the sense that there's been strong criticism of the WHO's initial response, um, but there's also been an, uh, an understanding that WHO continues to play an important role. So, and, and similarly with China, Australia's tried to play the role of the middle power, as it's sometimes called. So we're trying to um, bring alliances of other nations together um, in order to sort of set off um, some of the actions of the superpowers. Um, I think China is going to punish Australia for these actions uh, further down the line because uh, China never likes its sovereignty to be impinged um, and it's been increasingly assertive under uh, President Xi. So um, I think this is a, a something of a, a dangerous game that Australia's playing here, but it's certainly been very nimble diplomacy from Maurice Payne. Yes, and, and this has become, um, I guess, a political football, the WHO, because essentially um, the independent inquiry that's being proposed will also be critical and look into the conduct of the, of the WHO as well. Yeah, well, and, and that arguably is something that um, probably does need to happen. Uh, and, and, of course, the, the really controversial issue here is did the Chinese government cover up the early stages of coronavirus when it first emerged in Wuhan? And that has been the source of the tension over uh, the investigation internally in China. Uh, you know, there's, there certainly were early reports, particularly in um, late December and early January, uh, that the Chinese government or the provincial government um, in Hubei was covering up the, the emerging virus um, and that enabled it to get loose before it was before China took those very strong measures to quarantine all of Hubei province. Yes, and it's important, I think, to, to make that distinction between the provinces and those governing politicians uh, because I think once we look at that, a lot of the current um, discussion on the ground and even when it was emerging was that it was um, the, the local government who was potentially more reticent to let people know that something was going wrong. That's my understanding, yes, and, and the, the earlier reporting tends to confirm that. Um, but I guess that, that's what an investigation would look into. Um, and I think that's very interesting. Um, but I also think that um, some of the criticism of China has been overplayed. And when you compare China's reaction to the virus to, say, some of the government actions in the UK and the US and perhaps even Sweden, 
where you've seen governments essentially bungle their response to COVID-19 or um, in the case of the UK and Sweden decide that they weren't going to take action um, and they're going to let the virus run loose. Um, the UK then had to reverse course there. Um, that's led to thousands of unnecessary deaths. And I think, you know, those things need to be investigated as well. Absolutely. The damage was already done. Um, and that's why we needed to get on top of it. And we did uh, here in Australia, thankfully, and hopefully it continues that way. Um, in terms of coronavirus and another element, we have seen a lot of involvement with mining executives and board directors in a whole range of um, government responses to the coronavirus, which is a little bit puzzling for outside observers. And I'm thinking uh, not only of Andrew Forrest, who was um, helping the government buy $200 million worth of tests that we now can't use, um, but also mining executives being... Um, appointed as chairs of, of coronavirus task forces? Yes, well, um, I guess that's the, the go-to kind of industry response from the coalition government. Uh, you've got a problem, appoint a mining executive. Uh, and in the case of the coronavirus economic task force, it's a fellow called Nev Power. He's a former engineer and managing director of Fortescue Metals, uh, which is, of course, Andrew Forrest's uh, mining company. Um, and power is in charge of this kind of nebulous committee that the government has set up to look at the response to coronavirus. No one's really quite sure what these guys are doing. And when Senate estimates looked into it, we didn't get a whole lot more information. But we do know that Nev Power is being paid uh, quite a large amount of money, uh, something like uh, half a million dollars for his efforts. So it's uh, nice work if you can get it. Yeah, half a million dollars for six months of work. Well, you know, it doesn't get out of bed just for uh, any old kind of job keeper kind of way, Jamie. You know, um, a fellow of, of Nev Power's uh, undoubted uh, mining industry connections uh, is a guy <laughs> that needs to be paid well. <laughs> well, I mean, he probably doesn't really need a travel allowance right now, so that's um, one less cost. Now, let's talk about uh, another interesting and very related element. You just mentioned their uh, job keeper. And one of the issues that has come to the fore, um, and also job seeker, is this discussion of the payments and whether they should uh, be maintained and for how long. And one of the, I guess, surprising moments, and I think a lot of people have voiced their disappointment, was the Labor opposition not really providing much opposition and saying that, well, you know, we don't really think that uh, Job Seeker needs to be kept at $1,100 a fortnight, um, but we also think that $40 a day is not enough to live on, so maybe we should reduce um, the amount per fortnight going into the future after the six-month period. Um, it seems like it's pretty kind of wishy-washy and and also not really standing up for the people who will need support uh, potentially beyond six months. Oh, absolutely. And this is going to become, I think, an increasingly serious issue for the government because the, the recession that's related to coronavirus is deep and it's getting deeper. You know, we've seen devastating unemployment figures already and they just seem like they're going to get worse. Who knows where unemployment could end up? It could end up at 15%. Um, the government remains committed to this, I think, quite ridiculous idea that everything's going to be fine by September. Uh, I think no one believes that. 
Um, and it also has created a real problem for the government in the sense that it's created a cliff, essentially, that, you know, um, all of a sudden you've got hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are on, uh, at the moment, benefits that are mar- far more generous than they typically have been in the past, and they're all set to run out pretty much at the same time in September. So that creates enormous pressure, I think, not just on business and the actual uh, welfare recipients themselves, but on the government to come up with some kind of solution for that looming problem. Uh, And and of course, inside the coalition government too, we've got a a number of liberal backbenchers who are already beating the drum of austerity. They're already saying, we can't afford this. Uh, There's too much money being spent. Um, We're going to have to cut back. We're going to have to uh, wind back these benefits early. Uh, And so the, the government... It's, it, all of its instincts, of course, are to try and um, reduce spending, to try and get the budget back into balance. God knows why they would worry about that now, but they still do, apparently. Um, and this then creates all these kind of problems of how to manage the dramatic economic problems that confront Australia. Exactly. And there is a lot of stress uh, and anxiety in the community, particularly in those who have lost their jobs. Um, There's been some polling to look at how people are currently feeling about the economic situation they find themselves in uh, and that one in 10 Australians who did or have lost their jobs fear that they won't be able to find work again. And of course, that is a fairly reasonable anxiety to have, given that our economy isn't Uh, at its normal state. Things like jobs and job ads and availability is markedly down at the moment. And it's not just like losing one's job during a normal economic period, is it? Oh, no, it's very much not like losing your job in an economic boom or in healthy economic times. Um, People who are losing their jobs right now um, are not going to have a chance to get another job um, in some cases ever. You know, if you think about some of the people who might be losing their jobs in the current downturn, we know from the last recession of the early 1990s uh, that many of those workers who were laid off or made redundant, they never worked again. Uh, So these are devastating economic impacts on people's lives. Now, I'm certainly hopeful that this is not as bad a recession as that, but the current data says it's already worse than that, and it's already the worst economic event we've had really uh, since the Great Depression of the 1930s. And the problem is, where are the jobs going to be we're going to be coming from in the future. How are we going to get people back to work? What's the economic plan to come out of COVID-19? So far, we haven't seen one from the Morrison government. Josh Frydenberg gave an economic statement to Parliament last week. This was the one where he got a coughing fit and then had mm. to take himself into isolation afterwards. He did test negative after that. But the speech itself was very disappointing because he laid out essentially no roadmap, no pathway out of this this deep, deep economic downturn. So a lot of economists are very worried uh, because, you know, there's just no direction from the government beyond the, the usual kind of slogans and cliches about economic deregulation and, you know, innovation and, and these kind of empty buzzwords. But what's the plan? Mm. Yeah, it is very concerning. And obviously, that was meant to be uh, budget day or budget night. And we did also see a response from the Labor government. Did Labor provide anything um, that was of interest? Look, Labor's 
hasn't been doing a whole lot in this kind of area. Um, ironically, the Greens have actually released a, a pretty big and interesting economic statement in the last week or so, um, and that's very much geared towards um, sort of traditional social democratic government spending. They want to uh, expand education. They want to obviously expand green investment. Um, they want to do lots more renewable energy, all the sort of things you expect from the Greens. But it's a, there's also a big commitment to funding the arts, which I know a lot of R listeners will be interested to hear about. Um, and and it's, it's quite a bold economic statement, actually, I think. Um, it's the sort of thing that we'd hope that Labor would be showing. But under Jim Chalmers, Labor's fairly dry, fairly economically conservative Treasury spokesperson. We haven't seen a lot of policy innovation so far. Yes, of course, and also given that the election is still quite a while away, uh, it seems that they're biding their time, um, but obviously this is also a really important time to have different ideas being put forward because it does actually move things along and um, create space for new ideas. I wanted to also touch... I, I, should, I should quickly mention that Anthony Albanese has been giving a series of speeches where he's kind of been putting forward some big-picture ideas, and some of these have been pretty interesting. So um, I believe he's renewed his commitment to a high-speed rail link down the east coast of Australia. Um, so it's not like Labor's not doing anything. Um, I should, I should, you know, to be totally fair to Labor, um, but but I'm not seeing a kind of big detailed kind of economic plan from them, and probably that's because of the damage that it was inflicted in 2019 when the coalition ran so successfully against Labor's detailed policies. Yes, and also Anthony Albanese was the shadow infrastructure um, spokesperson, so he does have uh, a lot more expertise in that area to give policy views on. Um, Now let's just quickly touch on underemployment because that is one of the figures that has really um, shot up compared to unemployment, which of course has also risen, Uh, but underemployment has jumped from 8.8% to 13.7%, which is almost five percentage points in a very short uh, time space, in fact a month. So um, that is also something that's concerning because underemployment counts those who would like to have more hours um, and then also those who have had their hours involuntarily reduced because of the economic situation. What are your thoughts on underemployment in addition to unemployment? Well, it's bad, basically. Um, It's bad and it's getting worse. Um, Very good article from Greg Jericho recently in The Guardian where he looked at the number of working hours that Australians were working, and these have fallen off a cliff. So, uh, you know, there's just a level of economic activity in our economy is just way down. Um, and so, of course, there are people who want to work more. Um, yeah, you, you're absolutely right, Amy. Um, people who are underemployed are not counted in the official unemployment statistics, but they're also suffering economic pain. Um, so, again, I think just, again, it highlights the scale of the downturn. Exactly. Uh, ben, we'll have to finish it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you have a great week. Thanks, Amy. I really appreciate it. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. And I'm really excited to chat with Nick. We're going to be talking all about the history of beekeeping 
the practices of urban beekeepers such as uh, himself through honey fingers and also talking about some of the beautiful forms of honey and the honeycombs the kind of architectural and artistic forms that bees create that are quite wondrous um, and not only have a practical purpose, but they look pretty amazing too. So I'm very pleased to welcome Nick now to the show. Hi there, Nick. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good, thank you. That's good. Um, I'm so pleased to be able to talk about this subject and to pick your brain. Um Gosh, there's so many entry points to this subject, it's so hard to pick one, but I'm just going to have to dive in there. Um, Maybe it would work to ask you about your connection with bees first up and how you began to understand what what they were about and why why you kind of got into beekeeping and and appreciating the world of bees. Okay, well... I thought you might ask me that. So I actually scrolled through my Instagram to find the first post that, you know, we, we made as Honeyfingers and it was in 2013. So that's seven years as um, Honeyfingers. And in 2011, my family um, just bought me an um, introduction to beekeeping course for Father's Day. And uh, I just basically became deeply fascinated and I was studying architecture at the time at RMIT and um, in my first design studio I was looking at these sort of the forms of the animal architecture that the honeybee superorganism makes and my um, tutor at the time Diego Ramirez said yes but what's going on inside the hive Nick what's really going on why are they designing like this and of course I didn't really understand what he was driving at but I went to the state library next door and went into the archives and pulled out all these beautiful old gold letter embossed black leather bound volumes and started to read and essentially it just sort of organically developed from there as a um so initially it was much more about an appreciation of the honeybee superorganism and how it creates structures and then it sort of moved into other areas that we intersect with like food how can we create food from uh working with bees and then how does that relate to the urban food web and then how does that relate to other you know, people in the community who would like to eat honey and honeycomb, but also other animals in the community that are feeding on bees and and also sharing the bees' food, and off we went. That's so, so fascinating that you've um, kind of leapt in there with that fascination. And I guess coming from that architectural background, it is a really surprising kind of connection and entry point into bees. I never really thought about those really close connections uh, between architecture, I guess modernist architecture, which you write about in some of your articles, and also the actual beehive and the the modern beehive and how bees are managed. Um, We'll get to that in just a sec. Um, Nick, can I just ask you to turn off the video on Skype because we're having a little bit of um, some jumping and I want to make sure your voice is heard. Perfect. Our internet can sometimes be problematic. No, that's okay. It's, uh, hopefully we get a good sound. It, it seems pretty good anyway. Um, so, Nick, that's uh, really lovely. And I wanted to jump on what you've just said there about 
um, this kind of connection. And it's lovely that you checked back to see, you know, your first entry point to um, honeybees or bees in general, because I was actually looking into you and wondering whether you had been on Triple R before. And I saw that you were on the Architects uh, program in 2010, talking about um, your love of modernist architecture. Yeah, that's right. I was a big fan of um, Stuart show and Stuart, actually Stuart Harrison, the presenter, one of the presenters of that show actually was one of my teachers at RMIT. And um, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting the way it started with architecture <laughs> and I'd go on and we'd talk about Robin Boyd properties mm. in particular. That was my big fascination at the time. And yes, yeah, segued into into beekeeping, but yeah, like you say, I've taken that story about the big design trends that have um, humans have been involved in, and how they're also reflected in the practice of beekeeping. But a lot of people don't really think about beekeeping as having uh, a sort of a design component to it. No, definitely not. I don't. I don't think that's at all what would first come to mind. And let's, I do want to get into, you know, the different types of hives and the kind of setup that you've got. But before we get to that point, I did want to ask about the bees that you work with and the bees that we are probably broadly talking about. I know there are so many different kinds of bees and certainly in Australia, there are native bees, um, there are honey bees. And so there's I guess, a really broad range or diverse range of, of bee types in Australia. What are the yes. predominant bees that you see and work with in your, in your work and your passion? Well, it's, it's actually a really good question. So there are, you know, maybe 2,000 native Australian bees and the majority of them are not social insects. So they're solitary bees. There are some social uh, bee species, stingless bees, and they live in the warmer climate. So they live from, say, Sydney and up. The bees that we're talking about are Apis mellifera or the European honeybee, um, the Western honeybee, and they were brought out to Australia on a ship. They were also introduced to North America and Canada and a lot like cattle, sheep, roses, rats, sparrows, pigeons, they've accompanied humans as humans have sort of like travelled around the world. So we're talking about the European honeybee. And so that's really interesting. I, I wonder when you're talking about those solitary bees, um, what makes them distinct and what, what is their function and role within an ecosystem if, if their primary role is not to kind of participate in part of a hive? Well, they're doing the same thing that um, all the pollinators do. So they're flying around, um, pollinating plants. So they're taking some pollen and, or they're taking some nectar and getting um, some pollen on them and then flying onto the next plant and distributing that pollen. So essentially plants and, and bees and a number of other pollinating insects have a symbiotic relationship and essentially plants outsource their sexual life, their sexual reproductive processes to to bees and other pollinators. The really big difference between solitary bees and um, social insects like bees or, or ants, which we also get in Australia, is only the, the social insects produce enough of a surplus of honey for people to rob. 
And so that's the really big difference between them. The, the, the solitary bees essentially keep enough for themselves just to do the function of, of, of pollinating plants, but they don't create a surplus of honey. The social insects work together to create a, a surplus of honey, which gets them through lean periods or times when there isn't a lot of um, food around, like winter or really hot periods in summer. Exactly. And um, bef- I'd love to bring in also the sex element because um, it's really interesting when I was speaking a couple of years ago with Jürgen Tautz, who's a German uh, academic about bees, and we were talking about the fact that, of course, there's the queen bee that's um, a pretty vital part of this hive, the this honeybee hive, but also, you know, females tend to be, I guess, the most important type of bee, aren't they? They are, definitely with the European honeybees. So you have three castes. You have usually one queen bee. Occasionally you'll see two. Now she's the only fertile female bee in the hive. And we tend to project onto it like we think it's some sort of like royalty situation and she's commanding the troops. She's not. She's essentially an egg-laying machine. (laughs) That's her job. She rarely leaves the hive she leaves once when she's um goes out to mate she'll mate with up to 50 drones in the air then she comes back to the hive and unless she swarms or something happens she's not likely to leave the hive again then you have uh, a few hundred drones so they're the boy bees in the hive they're often overlooked by beekeepers because they uh, don't go out and forage, and but yet they eat. Um, so beekeepers, a lot of commercial beekeepers don't like having drones in their hive, but they guarantee the genetic diversity of the hive. So there's a lot of research now that suggests that the more diverse the number of drones a queen mates with, the healthier the hive will be because the drones carry the genes for all the different jobs that are done within a hive and essentially... Um, they can guarantee that you're going to get this fantastic workforce. Now, the workforce, as you were kind of inferring, they are sterile female bees and they are the absolute brains of the unit. There can be 10,000 to 100,000 of them, depending upon the size and the season and location of the hive. And they essentially have a whole bunch of rules. They have really, really simple rules that they follow and those rules lead to really complex and beautiful outcomes. And that is the sort of concept of emergent intelligence or groupthink. So they essentially make all these decisions collectively about where the best nectar is coming from, where the water is, when they should build honeycomb, when they should swarm, if they should keep this queen, if they shouldn't keep this queen. And essentially it's a whole bunch of little, little decisions that they all make collectively that lead them to those actions. It is really fascinating and especially some of the types of ways that they communicate with each other. And um, you highlighted to me a great author, Thomas D. Seeley, who has many books on honeybees and honeybee behaviour and um, that kind of hive uh, ecosystem. And one of his books was Honeybee Democracy. And um, he goes through in detail about the kind of processes that these honeybees go through to swarm together 
and, you know, have that queen, as you say, to keep a queen, pick a queen, and then to find a, a place, a hive to go and settle in. And um, it reminded me of this time that I was uh, walking in the Melbourne University campus, as I would often do, and I looked up and there was this big kind of um, fully circular globe light, a very large uh, round one, and there was just this mass of bees sitting all around the light, like just completely covered. And they were there for at least one to two days, just sitting there on top of this lamp. And I was thinking that presumably they were swarming together and they were um, trying to find a place to go and live permanently. Could you share with us what that is and how that process evolves? Well, that actually, Amy, is a very good observation because that is exactly what was happening. So, and and I love Melbourne Uni because yeah. I walk around there and I look up and I can see in the in the vents in the top of the brick buildings, the sort of, you know, 60s and 70s buildings, you'll often see bees flying in and out. They're, they live inside the buildings. And if you mm-hmm. look at some of the, um, the hollow branches of the really big eucalyptus and other trees there, you see wild colonies of bees living there. So, of course, you'll, you'll get swarms. So what happens in a swarm in spring, there's a few reasons they swarm, but I'll talk about this sort of one uh, type called a kind of overcrowding swarm, which typically happens in spring. Imagine that uh, a, a bee family has a finite space. And in spring, when there's lots of um, food coming into the hive, the queen lays many, many eggs, and essentially they outgrow that space. And when the queen doesn't have any room to lay more eggs because all of that space is full of honey, the bees all communicate to each other and say, we think it's time to swarm. And swarming, when you think about it like this, is a little like the process of a cell dividing and growing. So it's the, um, it's the reproductive process of the honeybee superorganism. So you think about the honeybee as being kind of a superorganism and it divides in two. And the queen mother will lay um, these special, um, she'll lay eggs in special cells called swarm cells. And they look like kind of peanuts hanging off a frame because the queen's longer than um, a regular bee. So she needs a bigger cell to grow in. And once she's got a few of these cells in the hive, she knows that there will be a successor for her. And she flies away with about 60% of all the bees in that hive. And they go to find like a little landing station where they set up a temporary camp. And that's what you would have seen on that light, on that light um, where they were all sort of clustering in a big ball. Mm. And they will hang out there for a few days. And if you looked really, really closely at it, and this is what Thomas Seeley does, you would have seen after a little while all of these bees dancing on the surface of the swarm. And the reason that they're dancing is the dance communicates coordinates of a new house for them to move to, which could be a hollow log, it could be a cavity in a wall, it could be a compost bin, it could actually be a swarm trap set up by a beekeeper. And so they will actually dance out the coordinates on the surface of this swarm. And if the bees like it, well, the bees will have a look at the dance. They'll fly to that site. They'll have a look around inside the box. They'll check it all out. If they like it, they come back and they repeat the same dance. And if they really, really like it, 
they repeat the same dance with a lot of vigor. It's really, really cute. You get these really excited honeybees doing this figure eight waggle dance. And it sort of gets to a point a little bit like a little bit like a, a viral video, like a meme that goes wild, like lots of people liking it. When the bees kind of get to this point where there's so many of these scout bees so excited about this location for them to fly to, they fly off. And that's when you see them swarming for the second time. And they'll actually fly to that location, move in and set up. It's so fascinating and really cool to think about. I I did take a photo of it because um, I just thought it was beautiful to see um, as a visual to see that kind of perfect round globe of bees just sitting there. Um, they were very loud uh, when you were walking past them and I was hoping that no one would touch them. Um, and one of my questions was, you know, you often see these bees swarming together. And as you say, it's not a temporary situation of an hour. It can be, you know, maybe it's one to three days uh, in a broad sense. And some people might think, oh, gosh, I need to get rid of these bees because they're, you know, in, in an inconvenient spot um, swarming together. What What are the kind of options when bees swarm together and humans start to think they need to intervene? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is that um, beekeepers love swarm season because they love collecting swarms. So if you do see a swarm like that, get in touch with a beekeeper. Don't try to interfere with it or do anything like that. And essentially, we'll come out and collect them. They're usually really, really calm Mm. when they're swarming because they have no babies to defend. They're usually full of honey, so they'll eat like two-thirds of the honey inside the hive before they go. And you can effectively, what happens is if you call a beekeeper and the beekeeper can access the swarm safely, they'll come along with essentially a beehive box. They put it underneath the swarm and they'll brush the bees or scoop the bees or shake the bees into it. And as long as the queen goes into that box, nine out of ten times, within an hour, the rest of the bees adopt that box as their home. The beekeepers generally wait until dark when they know all the bees have come home and they're inside and they take it away. It's just mind-blowing, really. It's so exciting too. And then it becomes like a part of, um, you know, a beekeeper's – Apiary, and so mm. they'll actually take those bees, and instead of it being something that people uh, should be fearful of, or you know, worried about getting stung or calling the pest exterminator, whatever, like if you call the beekeeper, they'll actually take those bees and turn them into happy little um, pollinators and honey-producing units within within their apiary. And if they're good beekeepers, they'll do their best to keep them in a good spot. They'll do their best to make sure they're disease-free and that they thrive. So there's a really positive thing that you can do if you see swarms. And they in Melbourne, peak swarm season, for me at least, is early October, but it will run through from September until summer in December. The really positive thing you can do if you see them is just call a beekeeper. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And you wrote a piece for Assemble Papers about swarm traps and the type of trap that you could 
quite literally build yourself um, to house those bees in using that process that you've described. So um, I, I really appreciate that you're making this information so accessible for people who want to understand and be fully informed about um, interacting with bees. I wanted to ask about this idea, you talk about being a good beekeeper. And I was wondering in this um, modern day context, looking at the kind of practices that you've adopted and that you teach to others in um, the, the kind of field of modern urban beekeeping, what would you consider to be a good beekeeper and what types of practices does a good beekeeper enact? Okay, so that it's a it's a big question, and there's lots and lots of different ways to be a beekeeper, and I'd argue that some of them are a little bit, um, some of them are more friendly to bees than others. So, what we try to do is essentially have a bee friendly system of beekeeping that is quite low intervention, and one of the fundamental rules is that. We strive to be excellent beekeepers to provide the best possible situation for our bees to live in so that they can actually produce a surplus of honey and we only ever rob the surplus of honey. And we don't feed our bees sugar water, we don't feed them protein supplements or anything like that. So in other words, we're taking the extra honey that the bees don't need over winter, but we leave them with heaps of honey through winter and if there's one thing that you can do as a beekeeper in australia where we don't suffer uh, suffer the same kinds of pressures on our bee populations because we don't have this thing called varroa mite if there's one thing you can do it's just leave your bees plenty of honey over winter so that would be the first thing the second thing that we do is um we're what we call uh foundationless beekeepers so instead of putting in a kind of a wax sheet that has an embossed honeycomb pattern on both sides of it that is like a template that the bees build from and it's held in place with wires we actually don't do that we let the bees build all their own honeycomb from scratch and we do that because we think that the I mentioned the three castes of the bees before. The honeybee superorganism is comprised of three, four components, the queen, the drones, the worker bees, and the architecture of the superorganism, which is the honeycomb. And if you let bees build their own honeycomb, they'll build it in the shape they want. Sometimes they'll build small cells. Sometimes they'll be, build big cells. And essentially, it will be suited to whatever their needs are at the time, as opposed to the kind of template-driven approach, which is what Foundation does. Um, we also do things like we never paint inside our hives. We try to use timber. Um, we don't use any chemical treatments. We don't put treat chemical treatments inside the hive. We try to manage diseases by keeping hives really, really healthy. Um, and all of that may sound really, really basic, but it's quite different from a lot of conventional beekeeping techniques. And in some respects, it's kind of a luxury because we're not under the pressure that all of my beekeeping colleagues in uh, North America and Europe and Asia are, are suffering, where they have 
so-called colony collapse disorder and they have so many hives that just don't survive winter. I didn't lose one hive over winter and I know a lot of beekeepers who didn't. So we've got these really strong, healthy, vigorous hives and so I think we can afford to be much less, have many fewer kind of interventions in the hive than every other continent on earth. Mm, exactly. And you do mention in that piece um, the fact that your colleagues um, across the world, really, uh, every other continent except us, is suffering from colony collapse disorder. And also uh, the mite that you referred to earlier, the Varroa destructor mite. Um, and it does sound like that is, you know, pretty uh, scary and difficult to contend with. And it was interesting to also note the unique situation in Australia that you also refer to around the fact that about 70% of Australia's bees are quote-unquote feral bees or wild bees that aren't, um, I guess, kept in, a, in a, like, um, a particular way. Can you share with us what makes Australia so unique and why we are special at this point in time? Yeah, sure. By the way, you're really well researched. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, so we kind of have a little bit of a um, a little bit of a, a saying in the collective, which is that Australia is currently experiencing the last golden age of beekeeping on the planet, and that's because we literally have the healthiest population of honeybees from any continent. So if you add it all up over most continents, they have these pockets of real trouble with um, with pests and diseases. Now, people have varying opinions on, on why this is so, but from an Australian perspective where we still have, for example, a little bit of um, too much inbreeding with, with queen rearing where there's still broad acre agricultural pesticides and herbicides and fungicides where we still have industrial scale beekeeping where we have you know migratory beekeeping where we pick up a bunch of hives and all put them in the same spot so they can quite easily spread diseases through each other uh, we're still experiencing climate change we're experiencing all of these things that put pressure on bee populations except for varroa mite and in my opinion, varroa mite is the tipping point for the health of bee populations. And what happens in many places like America and Europe was when varroa first arrived, it, it essentially sucks the, the sort of fat out of larvae, but also out of adult bees and it acts, which makes them weak, but it acts as a vector for diseases. So much like mosquitoes spread malaria, these varroa mites can spread these diseases, which um, put a lot of pressure on bees and perhaps kill them at um, a younger age than, than they would normally live. And that creates all sorts of problems in the hive. But in Australia, we don't have it. And so our wild populations or non-managed populations are about 70% and the managed populations are about 30 in places like America, and these stats are a few years old, so they may have changed, but it's about the opposite. So they lost nearly 90% of their bees in the first wave of so-called colony collapse disorder and when Varroa came in and they've sort of built the numbers up, but still the majority of hives are managed, so 70% of them in America and only 30% um, of them are wild. And part of the reason that Australia is 
so friendly to bees is um, we don't have Varroa mite, but we also have these giant forests of flowering plants. So all of those eucalyptus forests are some of the world's tallest flowering plants. Um, Malaleucas, Leptospermum, like they all produce so much honey. And when you compare that to, say, northern hemisphere species of plants, big trees, they're often wind-pollinated. So, you know, mm. oaks are wind-pollinated. All those conifers are wind-pollinated. Whereas in Australia, we have this these beautiful sort of grumia and eucalyptus flowers that are quite simple. They're like a little open cup full of nectar with the flowers popping out of it. And they are sort of designed for birds and marsupials, um, you know, bats and moths and bees and other insects and pollinators to come and drink from. So you've got this massive volume of nectar. And to top it all off, these big eucalyptus trees have the perfect hollows for European honeybees to live in. And I sort of say this cautiously because that is also a little bit of a problem. These aren't native bees. They're, you know, often displacing lorikeets or, or other um, animals, native animals that are looking for these hollows as well. But they kind of can live side by side. Ecology is an ever-evolving thing. But when you add it all up and you look at Australia, it's just this fantastic place for honeybees. Yeah, it sounds like it's the ideal place. Um, I was reading that piece uh, of yours from a few weeks ago when you were talking about the different characteristics and qualities that these areas in Melbourne that you have your hives in actually have and take on, particularly with the honey. And you were talking about um, the ironbark trees and how, I guess, unique they are in providing a very special and interesting type of honey. Could you share with us some of that um, information and your experience experiences gathering um, and robbing the honey from those different hives in places like North Melbourne, in Carlton, in North Fitzroy and beyond? Sure. So in the city, we have polyfloral honey. So it's honey that comes from many sources. And unlike a lot of rural beekeepers who are migratory beekeepers, so they'll put their hives onto the backs of trucks or trailers and they move from, I don't know, from where canola is flowering, then they'll move the, you know, to where almonds flowering and then maybe they'll move it to grey box. They're constantly moving their hives around to try to make sure that the bees are getting onto a nectar source and often that that's sort of one nectar source and that's called a monofloral variety of honey. It's very different here. So we're migratory beekeepers. We leave our beehives in the same spot all year round. And you might think that, oh, well, the honey will always taste the same. But it doesn't. It's really, really interesting. So even within the same hive, within the same season, you can get a couple of radically different types of honey if you're robbing the bees as you go. So in other words, you're taking early spring honey out and then you let them fill the frames back up and they fill it full of summer honey. And right now in North Melbourne, in one of our sites, there's a hive that's working ironbark or these sort of red flowering gums and, and white flowering gums. And the honey, and it's not usual that you'll get a big row um, or a big stand of one type of plant or tree in Melbourne that the bees will just fly to because it's the closest thing. But occasionally you get it. 
Um, it hasn't been as dark this year, but last season, a lot of those trees were in bloom and the honey that came out of it in the jar literally looked black. And it's happened to me a couple of times in North Melbourne. There's also some really big river red gums over there in the park and some sugar gums. And I think that they all produce this sort of um, darker honey, but it might only be around for a few weeks and it may only be prevalent in one season. Then you have to wait a couple of years for the trees to all bloom again before you get it again. But it's really fascinating because it connects you immediately with your context. So when you open the beehive and you stick your finger in and you taste a little bit of honey, you're becoming a part of this food web and this ecology in a really direct and immediate way because those bees, they're not like chickens just scratching around in your backyard. They can fly up to several kilometres around the hive and as they're flying around, butcher birds and red wattle birds will eat them and they'll be pollinating backyard gardens but also pollinating weeds and, and, and big trees and within that hive itself sometimes you'll lift the lid and you'll find a little gecko or cockroaches or all sorts of microbial stuff going on there. And it's just this fascinating connection to the, the wide world. And, you know, you might look at it and it looks like dark honey and it just reminds you of all of these connections that exist even inside, you know, our city that we might not usually think of if we're not doing something like beekeeping. Yeah, it's so, so interesting that that kind of single look can can crop up from those um, trees that all flowered at the same time and I think it's so lovely and great that we do have as you said these really tall flowering gum trees that provide such a great source for honeybees Um, what did the black honey out of curiosity taste like okay so most of the honeys and I've got a little jar in my hand here for the um, listener to imagine yeah they're kind of Melbourne Urban honey tends to be sort of light and golden. It's not a really dark brown. Um, the dark brown stuff usually comes from eucalypts out in the uh, out in the bush, and it's all blended together. Whereas you send to, you can kind of get this more single source thing happening in Melbourne, and it's very sweet if you compare it to honeys from around the world, and it's quite floral. It's very very. Um, it tastes like a million flowers. The North Melbourne honey tastes really quite strong. It's also sweet, but it has like more of a, a sort of a burning effect on, on the back of your throat, not in a bad way, in a good way. And it, it tastes less sort of floral, but it's, it's more of a, um, like a darker kind of molasses feel and taste to it. Lots of bass notes, less top end, I suppose you could say. Mm. That's so, so wonderful. Because I, I, when I, um, I was, I think I went into a store in Gertrude Street, uh, gosh, it was probably a year ago now. And I'd kind of just stumbled upon your North Fitzroy um, honey from a summer batch. I think it was 2019 perhaps um and it was when I took it home and I ate it it just was something I'd never tasted before like it just was so uh 
complex, as you say. It's just got so many different sources. And, and it also just had a different, a totally different consistency um, to the normal honey that you might buy, um, even not necessarily the kind of big brands, but even some of the smaller brands that you still can get um, from a supermarket. The consistency is different. And my understanding is a lot of that is also to do with the process of making honey that you particularly engage in um, and that you've shown on your Instagram and I mentioned it earlier, hopefully people can check out your extraction video um, because I found that so fascinating to watch how you um, yourself and presumably a number of other urban beekeepers actually extract the honey and then um, spin it in order to put it into a form that is ready to be jarred. Could you kind of give us a little bit of an overview of how your process of of honey making um, can lead to this really special type of of honey that has that um, different consistency? Sure. So the really big difference between what small outfits like um, Honeyfingers and a lot of the larger uh, commercial um, brands is that we don't heat treat the honey. It's raw honey. So what happens is once you heat treat a honey, um, it basically stays runny forever. And Australians, just by force of habit and familiarity, have grown up with this idea that honey's always runny, runny honey. <laughs> um, but like any other food, Honey changes its consistency and even its flavor with age, and you can age honey. So if you're getting in high summer a really runny honey, that's because seasonally it's super fresh, and that's what honey is like, in Melbourne at least, um, in summer. But then as the product ages, I won't get too technical, but essentially there's Mm. a couple of different sugars inside honey and the, the sugar crystals and the water crystals start to separate depending upon the um, consistency of that particular honey and it gets thicker and crystallizes. Now, the wonderful thing about most of the urban honeys that we produce in Melbourne is that it never really, really goes hard. It never goes rock hard like um, clover honey can go really rock hard. Mm. So you kind of get this creamy um, consistency to it and you get a texture in your mouth from eating the honey as it's starting to crystallize. So by midwinter, usually it will have turned and it'll be, it'll go lighter in color and become thicker and more crystallized. And so getting a bit of a mouthfeel with honey is really, really interesting. And as the crystals melt, you kind of get a slower release of all the different flavors and it kind of changes the flavor experience of eating the honey. And it's fantastic. And a lot of people are still a little bit afraid of, of crystallized honey, but I really sort of encourage everybody to, to, to run with it and to keep a couple of different honeys inside their pantry. So if you want a runny honey for cooking, keep one. But if you want something nice and firm that you can put on cheese, for example, that isn't going to go everywhere and offers you a bit of extra mouthfeel, keep a couple of varieties of honey and, and appreciate them as they mature. Now, the great thing about the way we do our honey extraction, much like how we sort of um, do our beekeeping, is that it's actually a pretty lazy process. And when I say lazy, I mean it's really, really simple. So we don't get too complicated. We don't want to handle the product too much. And we literally take what is called a frame of honey. So inside the beehive, you have 
a wooden frame that the bees build the honeycomb inside. Now, once that honeycomb is full of honey and the bees have capped that honey, in other words, they put a little wax lid on all the cells, that's the cue to the beekeeper that the honey is ready to extract. So the water content in that honey is below about 18%, and we know that it's not going to ferment. If you rob honey and it hasn't got um, a little wax cap on it, not always, but often it means that the bees haven't quite cured it. So bees are also cooks. They're these sort of like volatile sugars from the environment and they're curing them to get them to this point where they're, they're quite stable and they're not going to ferment. We pull out frames of honey. It's called capped honeycomb. Come back to our honey kitchen. And there's many different ways of doing it. We do a very, very simple method, um, uncapping those frames. Oh, Nick, we're having a little bit with of what, issues with you breaking up. It's called an uncapping fork. It kind of looks like a comb. We're just scratching off the lips just to take the lid of honey. you okay there, Nick? I think we were having some internet uh, issues. It says there's a bit of a poor connection at the top there. Here we go. No. Are you there? Yeah, you there know what go. I'm doing? I'm just moving downstairs to get closer to the modem, the really good router. Yeah. yeah. I'm currently Don't you love the trying to avoid being tripped over by my dog. <laughs> Who, and, by the uh, way, I'm is gorgeous. Walk. Yeah, he's unreal. Yeah. No, so is that better? Yes, that is. Thank you. Um, maybe if you just okay, so go back to the that. capping because you mentioned there that they put a cap over the, the honey and they're kind of like cooks and that was the bit where we last heard the full idea. Oh, okay. I really got into that moment too. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> they get the honey to about 18% uh, water. They, they cap it with this wax. We take that out, take it back to the kitchen, uncap it with, by scratching off that wax lid with an uncapping fork, fork. And there's lots of ways you can do that. There's knives, there's even machines, but we do it really simply. Then we have an extractor, which is essentially a centrifuge. So imagine you've got this big um, stainless steel cylinder that's about, I don't know, say uh, a foot and a half wide. And inside that, there are these little uh, cages, if you like, or little baskets, wire baskets. And we put the honeycomb inside those baskets, get a nice balanced load, and then we spin the, the honey frames around and around and around, you know, um, and all the honey is forced out of the honeycomb and onto the walls of the centre of the centrifuge. And then they, it drips down through a coarse little filter and into a tank below and we pour the honey out of the tank. Mm. And so in terms of what is in the jar at the end, uh, it's my understanding that it's not just necessarily the nectar or the, the honey that we would think of traditionally, the kind of runny honey part, but there's also the other parts of the hive that 
end up kind of coming in through through the filter and um, somehow being a part of that? Yeah, that's true. So we don't have this finely filtered honey. We have what's called a coarse filter. So you get little bits of wax, little bits of pollen, little bits of propolis. So all the good stuff from inside the hive comes through. And you'll see it if you hold it up. You'll see like little floating particles. And none of it is, uh, unless you've got an allergy to pollen, it's all really, really good for you. And it's all super beneficial because it hasn't been heat treated. None of the enzymes inside the honey have been damaged and you're starting to get things like the botanicals, like the pollen and some people who suffer from hay fever really enjoy that. So Mm. they'll tend to take it, um, you know, by the spoonful in the run up to spring to try to build up, I suppose, some kind of of resistance um, or get their body familiar with all the pollens from the local area before, uh, before spring. I actually did do that. Uh, with your honey, and I don't know, I can't say that that was the reason, but I basically had no hay fever for a huge part of spring. So I don't. I I was actually intentionally doing that because of that very reason. I had horrible hay fever the time before, um, which causes asthma as well. So I think it can be have a, a massively positive effect when it does work for some people. So I was just amazed at the fact that it can have that um, health element to it and a really positive um, effect. Yeah, well, I I don't suffer from hay fever, but my sister-in-law does, and she's tried it as well, and she says it helps her. I mean, these are controversial topics Mm. because a lot of conventional medical practitioners will tell you it's all baloney. But um, it kind of makes sense because what honey does when it's treated in such a low intervention way is it gives you essentially, literally, food that's being gathered from your immediate environment and distilled into a, into a kind of medium that you can literally take home in a jar. And there's very, very few foods like that in the middle of the city. And so I think that there's something about being connected to, you know, looping back to that, that concept I was talking about of being connected to your local food web which probably has surprising results for inside the human body, if that mm. makes sense. Instead of all of your food coming in from hundreds of kilometres away or thousands of kilometres away, I think there are things about eating locally that we don't quite understand. And I think there's things about eating locally, and I'm, I'm just speaking speculative, speculatively here, but there's something going on in, even at the sort of microbial level that really benefits humans and we don't quite understand it all yet. Yeah, there's a lot more to learn. Um, and particularly with bees, like the stuff that goes <laughs> on in there, the, in the biome of the hive is amazing and there's so many connections to humans and our own guts. Mm. But that's a whole other story. Yeah, I hope people can check out a post I shared of yours on um, bee bread and because you talk about yeast and um, the amazing kind of role that bees have with yeasts and how they, you know, have that, as you say, the microbiome of their guts as well and the kind of role that that plays in the honey and the hive um, process. But because we're running low on time, I just wanted to finish out our chat to talk about World Bee Day, which relates to this topic that you've mentioned before about bee culture and the relationships between humans and bees. And I'm not thinking about the kind of 
commercial transaction that um, humans have traditionally had. And obviously, we've industrialized our transaction substantially uh, with bees in the last um, century. But I did want to ask about uh, the person, the Slovenian beekeeper from the 1700s, who um, their birthday is actually the day of World Bee Day, and that's tomorrow, May the 20th. Could you just share with us the, that person's significance um, to, I guess, bee culture and the human relationship with bees? Yeah, so bee culture is that term we use when we're describing the special relationship that exists between humans and honeybees. And Anton Jansa um, is a hero of mine, and he was, uh, and he's very much a hero in Slovenia. Slovenia is a country that produces the highest amount of honey per capita than any other country in the world, and they have, I think they share the top spot for having the most amount of beekeepers. So they've got a lot of beekeepers who only own about 15 or so hives each. So instead of having one beekeeper that owns 10,000 hives, you've got thousands of beekeepers who own dozens of hives. So Anton Janso is amazing. He grew up in this family and he was a painter, a talented painter, and his siblings were also talented painters. And there was this idea that they were all going to go off to the academy and study painting, but he pursued beekeeping. However, the things that some of the things that he's most remembered for is the fact that he combined his painting with beekeeping. And he was very well respected as a beekeeper. He wrote a couple of very significant books. Once again, he designed beehives that were very, very progressive at that point in time. And he even became the first sort of teacher of beekeeping in the West and was invited by the Empress of Austria to teach at a beekeeping academy and he kept bees on her ground. So he did all of the education stuff. But the thing that perhaps he's most remembered for is his paintings on the fronts of these beehives. And they're these incredibly hilarious little oil paintings that may have some religious significance, but oftentimes they're depicting folk tales. And the way that they organise their beehives is they may have a grid of, say, six beehives going up and ten beehives going across. And the fronts of these beehives weren't particularly big. They were, like, maybe about 10 centimetres high, 30 centimetres wide. But each of them had a beautifully rendered little painting on it, and they were presented inside a little bee hut, often with a roof that was curved over your head, so you'd be walk, you know, you would see these like wonderful little bee huts with this little gallery of paintings on the front of them, dotted throughout the suburbs and the fields of Slovenia. And a lot of that was driven by Anton Jansa. And it's this wonderful kind of intersection between beekeeping, design, and art, as well as folk traditions. Yeah, they're amazing. You did send me um, one of these images and it's phenomenal, um, the artistic beauty and also the kind of, what are they, standing, the huntsman's funeral. I'm just, it's a real, oh, standing deer? Well, yeah, there's this joke. So there's all these little stories that they tell and that particular one you're talking about, mm. the huntsman's funeral, the, the, the huntsman 
has been killed. And so the animals that he hunts are leading the procession through the forest. So they're carrying the dead huntsmen on the shoulders and there's bears and there's deers. And it's really, really cute. And it's kind of hilarious too. Yeah. Um, and, and then behind that, there's this really sophisticated stacking beekeeping system with these sort of big removable drawers that was really, really innovative beekeeping back in the 18th century with a lot of observations about swarming, a lot of observations about the queen bee and what she does. So it was very much science, um, art, uh, you know, um, folk culture. It was, it was the whole lot. And so that's why I think that World Bee Day, it's so appropriate that it's on Anton Janssen's birthday. Yeah. Um, I've just shared the image to um, the Uncommon Sense Instagram story uh, if people wanted to quickly look at what we were referring to. Um, I'm going to have to leave it there, Nick, but I have like a million other questions. Um, That's okay, though, because your Instagram is a source of a huge amount of information. And I think it's so lovely that you're being really generous and um, sharing your passion and your knowledge with other people who are also really interested uh, and love bees. And I know there are people who quite literally do love bees and I certainly would count myself among them. So thank you so much for sharing your love today of bees and also your amazing knowledge. Thank you so much for um, inviting me onto the show and for your curiosity about bees and you should come beekeeping next spring. I would love that. Yeah, come out and have a look. Open it up. Have a look inside. It's a a wondrous feeling. um, Yeah. Happy World Bee Day, everybody. Yes, exactly. Happy World Bee Day. (laughs) Thank you so much, Nick. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And uh, we are going to be talking about the latest in UK politics, which no doubt will have um, a fairly substantial focus on the coronavirus and how the economy and society uh, and their politics is changing and being affected. So I welcome Dr. Chloe Ward now. Hi there, Chloe. Hey, Amy. How are you going? Oh, I'm good. I'm doing well. How are you? Um, I'm okay. I'm actually hiding in the coldest room in my house right now, which oh. is unfortunate. Yeah, I live next door to a building site. Oh my which gosh! Is not Hello. Ideal when you're on the radio. No, yeah, I totally understand. Um, well, it's good to have you back on the show, and uh, I really enjoyed our last chat. And so I'm very uh, pleased to be talking with you again about UK politics. Um, I know that there are so many things to cover. I did want to first up ask about. Um, the situation in the UK, maybe we can give people an idea of where the UK is currently at in terms of the coronavirus um, infections and deaths, as well as um, where the political leadership has taken society in terms of um, opening up the economy, opening up society, which we've heard so many times from Donald Trump. And we've also been hearing the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, spouting almost the very same things. Yeah, that's right. I I mean, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but what I can tell you, Amy, is that as of 
must have been a week or maybe two weeks ago, the UK now has the highest death toll in Europe, which I think says a lot. And it says a lot about some of the decisions that were taken fairly early on during the pandemic. I'm sure that plenty of listeners are aware that Boris Johnson was flirting with a herd immunity strategy, which was, you know, basically the idea was to let the virus rip throughout the UK. And I think that the country is kind of now paying the price for that because, like I said, they've got that highest death toll. As far as I can tell, it seems like coronavirus is still having some serious effects, particularly in care homes. So it's it's the curve is starting to flatten, but it's nowhere where, you know, I think the UK would like to be. Yeah, I just had a quick check um, on The Guardian and it says that the daily death toll um, has risen by 160 and the current tally is 34,796 deaths in the UK. Yeah, and that's the official death toll. Mm. So it was only quite lately that the UK started counting deaths in care homes, which I mentioned just then. So the more, I think... um, there are predictions out there of upward of 50,000 deaths already. So we don't really have a firm grasp on what those totals look like. And I think it's really, it's put the government in a really tricky position because they're obviously looking to exit the lockdown, which is, you know, when you've got 50,000 plus deaths, it's maybe not a great idea to rush towards. Oh, gosh, I know. It's really striking to think that they are rushing towards opening things up. Boris Johnson basically just having a, giving a speech saying, you know, get back to work, go back to your workplace um, with the circumstance that they find themselves in. And as you said, um, there was this unknown element of deaths in aged care homes and how many of those were attributable to coronavirus because um, they weren't being counted in the official tally and it does not make any sense to me why they weren't. Um, but presumably they didn't back count them and, and reinsert them into the figures, did they? No, no, that's right. They started counting them. I think it must have been two weeks ago, but they haven't done that tally, which is why I think the most mm. the most interesting figures to look at are the figures around excess deaths. So how many deaths you would normally expect at a certain time in the year, how many more we're seeing in 2020, and then counting back from there to try to attribute them to the coronavirus. Mm. And we have seen figures uh, coming out across the last couple of weeks saying that half of the coronavirus deaths in Europe have been in aged care homes. So that is a pretty substantial uh, demographic or section that they've missed up until recently. Yeah, and the politics of that are quite both fascinating and devastating. So what I'm hearing are lots of stories about people working in care homes who are furious at the fact that they weren't provided personal protective equipment, so PPE, early on in the during the pandemic. And even stories going so far as hearing about care home workers who have protested about that, say, on on social media or even to their management, and they've been fired for that. Mm. Yeah. So, again, it's coming back to the decisions that were taken really early on that have proved, you know, literally fatal. Exactly. And when it does get out of hand, you can't actually catch up often. Like there is a very short window to do something and to do something drastically. And we did see eventually a kind of almost mass lockdown, but it was slow. And I did see stories, you know, with people still going to the gym because the gyms hadn't been shut yet. And, you know, it was not really a, a no holds barred approach, was it? 
No, that's right. And when Boris Johnson says we're going to exit lockdown, what he's saying, he's coming from a position where serious as anything you've seen, say, in Europe, which, of course, he's constantly comparing the UK's situation to quite favourably. So if they exit their lockdown, they're going to be returning to something close to normal than we're seeing in any other country that has, has you know, that has got the curve under control. Mm, exactly. And when he came out and, you know, gave this speech to the nation and, you know, was kind of um, being his usual self, uh, being a little bit blustery and off the cuff, really, he was saying, and it was kind of quoted in a headline, go to work. And people started to be very confused by the messaging they were receiving because out of the blue, the prime minister's telling everyone, oh, everything's normal. Let's let's all get back to work, um, get the economy moving again. And we have seen that kind of rhetoric from Donald Trump in a more extreme fashion. And I was wondering around that and the kind of confusion that has been occurring in the UK at a messaging and public health uh, messaging and response level, because there does seem to be and has been pockets of moments where people have quite literally not known what was going on or whether the tests were working or or what tests were being counted in completed tests or whether it was tests that were sent out to testing sites but hadn't yet been actually swabbed. You know, there were all these kind of ambiguities and confusion around the information, the kind of official health information that was coming out of the government. What, where are we at at, that, at this point that we're in now? So with regard to testing, um, Matt Hancock, who is the UK's health minister, he, he, pro- he had a target set out to have, I think it was 100,000 tests conducted a day by the end of April. He managed to get there one day and there's a lot of, you know, when people were sort of looking back on that, it was actually based not on the tests that have been conducted but on tests that have been sent out. So 100,000 tests a day for one day, maybe two, and since it's been dropping back. So we've seen, you know, 77,000, 60-odd thousand tests a day. So it wasn't much of an achievement, even though, you know, Hancock was very ready to trumpet that. I think the point about, you know, so people are talking about how the government's messaging is very confused, and that's absolutely right. So Boris Johnson's, his speech, it wasn't accompanied by, you know, the, the infographics that, we're seeing, say, even here in Ireland that are really clearly explaining what exiting lockdown looks like. It was accompanied by a 50-page document that, you know, it's, as a piece of messaging was only going only bound to confuse people. But I think the really interesting thing there is because there's one way of looking at the government's messaging and that's to say it's confused. There are also people who think that this is tactical on the part of the government. So, you know, without trying to go too far into conspiracy theory, I think there's reason to suspect the government's motives because it's very possible that what they're doing is trying to confuse the public. So when the public does the wrong thing and infections rise again, it becomes easy to blame people for for failing to follow the government's advice. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And um, one of the other interesting elements to this when we're talking about testing and capturing uh, the number of actually infected positive um, people, there's a professor at King's College in London called Tim Spector who put together this app, a data collecting app, which was really interesting because as he said in a radio interview, you know, you get, you're collecting data about hospital admissions and potentially positive tests, but there are a number of people who may not 
not have been tested, weren't even potentially eligible for a test at the time, who had or do have coronavirus based on their symptoms, which they have been reporting into this app that he and his team created. And they now have data uh, from over 1.5 million people over there, um, which he suggests says that 50 to 70,000 people in the UK may have been missed as possible cases of coronavirus. So it's interesting to see that academia and the scientific community has had to step up in place of what you would presume to be a government type role. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's only today that they've announced in the UK that they're going to open up testing to anyone who's showing symptoms. I mean, I quite early on in the pandemic when it was really hitting London, I have I have a couple of friends who are living in a flat share there. And one of my mates, I mean, it'll never be confirmed because he wasn't eligible for testing, but he got what was pretty clearly coronavirus, passed it on to his two housemates. They called the NHS to report it and they were told, you know, because obviously the NHS is incredibly overburdened, Mm. they were told, call us back when you can't breathe. So they're exactly the sorts of cases that have been flying under the radar and people like, and people, academics are having to do the hard yards of picking those up and trying to account for them. Mm. And this uh, brings up and has brought up in so many regards the underfunding of the NHS and also um, the fact that it's really been pulled back and torn apart in certain areas um, and really been compromised in a sense because of uh, funding cuts and trying to to morph it into something that it was never designed to be. I know that a lot of UK residents have have historically been very proud of the NHS as a kind of policy legacy and something that is really important to their identity and how their society is... uh, created and works and functions so that people who um, may not be able to afford the best care actually still get the best care. What do you think um, this situation is currently highlighting and what are some of the things we've learned about the NHS now when it's been put under such extreme pressure? I think, well, I think that this is what you're saying points to the fact that this is a crisis that has been 10 years in the making because that, you know, it's, it will this has come at the end of, you know, what was effectively nine, ten years of austerity in the UK. And I think what's shown about the the NHS is, one, it is quite a, it's an incredibly bureaucratic system and it is one that has needed some form of modernisation for a long time, but that in the last ten years has come in exactly the wrong way. So it's been subject to a lot of what, you know, what academics call public management theory, which basically means that it's been run on a shoestring um, for the last ten years and the cracks in that system were bound to show up when a pandemic came along. And the other thing I mentioned is that the UK actually had really advanced pandemic planning. I think going back to they did their last pandemic exercise in the NHS in 2016. But when you do when so they were really well prepared in theory but when you have a system that isn't going to stand up to you know this huge demand that's that's going to show and it has shown here yeah exactly um and it's not just uh, something that's isolated to uh, the UK either, isn't it? It's something that has become more and more of a trend in um, some of the more progressive progressive states in terms of healthcare, including Australia, when it comes to the undermining of Medicare. So there does seem to be a broader trend um, that neoliberalism and austerity thinking has been contributing to these crises. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, 
it's worth comparing the UK's situation to Germany, which mm. has, I think it's it's one of or the lowest death toll in Europe. And that's because they have a really, you know, that's in part because they have a really well-managed and well-resourced healthcare system. That's also, when I, when I say it's, you know, it's modernised, it's a modern health system. It's one that's really effectively managed by the individual states in Germany, as opposed to, you know, sort of creaking bureaucracy that you see in the UK. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Um, I want to talk about the buzz that surrounds Keir Starmer. Um, he has a really interesting name too. It's great to say the name Keir Starmer, so maybe that's a, that helps his cause. But um, I was really interested in his uh, performance because people have been remarking upon it, particularly in uh, the Prime Minister's questions, which is obviously a really important part of the political uh, performance and also how the game is played out, but also that uh, news outlets like the New Statesman that is a progressive-leaning publication have said um, Keir Starmer has transformed Labor into a credible opposition. Uh, So I'm wondering from your perspective, how is Keir Starmer, the new Labor Labor opposition leader, actually performing at the moment? Well, I think it's there's a degree to which it really is a cosmetic change because what I keep seeing is people going on about Keir Starmer's nice suits and his decent haircut. <laughs> yeah, he does um, style his hair well. That's true. Yeah, oh, it does. I mean, look, yeah. I just I don't know how he keeps it, I don't know how, know how he keeps it standing up like that. Yeah. But he's he sort of he, he made I think I think he made a few missteps when he was coming into the leadership, which you can understand because you know, it's not not ideal for the Labor Party to get a new leader in the middle of a global pandemic. Certainly, he's performed really well in prime in PMQs, which is the equivalent of our question time in the UK. And I think a lot of people expected that. So Keir Starmer is a former former barrister, former director of public prosecution. So he's very good on that parliamentary stage. And I think Boris Johnson is quite terrified of him. As far as I think asking questions around policy and proposing alternatives to what the Tories are offering. I don't know that Keir Starmer and his team have quite got a handle on how they should be responding because one thing that the Tories were doing quite early on is they were almost, you know, they're almost outflanking Labor from the left with their stimulus offerings and the supports they're offering to the economy. And I don't, and Labor was quite hesitant on that. So I'm not quite sure where they're going to land, um, you know, I would I would hope that they stick with much of the left-wing program that, that came with Jeremy Corbyn, but perhaps they're going to put a more acceptable face on that in time. Yeah, and it, there is that split still. It is a pretty obvious split between the so-called momentum faction of uh, British Labor and also, um, I guess, the, the portion that Keir Starmer has traditionally represented, which is more moderate and, um, I guess, centrist in in a way. Uh, How would you classify British Labor right now in terms of where its policies so far seem to be sitting or have they not revealed enough for us to understand their positions? They haven't revealed that much, but Keir Starmer certainly came to leadership promising to keep intact most of the most of the left wing policies that Jeremy Corbyn was offering. In terms of it's he comes in terms of his factional allegiances, Keir Starmer and many of the people he's appointed to his leadership team to the Shadow Cabinet, they come from the soft left, which is 
they're not they're not you know centre right they're not Blairites um, in the sense that we'd be familiar with so people like Tony Blair Gordon Brown um, Ed Balls Yvette Cooper etc. They are very sympathetic to the left but they're not necessarily either committed to a left program politically or they're not able they haven't historically been able to prosecute that so. In a sense, Keir Starmer, you know, there's the risk that his project will end up being quite similar to Ed Miliband. So Ed Miliband, who was the Labor leader between 2010 and 2015, he had a lot of sympathies for the left, but he found himself, I think, railroaded by the right into supporting a lot of, you know, traditional centre-right, Blairite policies. So I think there's a there's a, the sense in which Keir Starmer is going to be trapped between a left-wing membership and the demands of the right and we're going to see if he can find a way to work within that um, without being compromised in the way that Ed Miliband was before him. Mm. Yeah, and you highlighted there the fact that he is a barrister. That's his kind of professional background, um, which is not so rare given that a lot of politicians come from a law background. But one of the things that people have remarked upon was the fact that Keir Starmer and his ability to prosecute an argument, to articulate an idea and to essentially provide a contrast point to what a lot of people see as a bluff and bluster type person of Boris Johnson, that that even just that kind of difference of skill set and abilities has been enough of a contrast for Keir Starmer to look particularly effective and to highlight the deficiencies of the Tory government. What do you think of that? I think that's absolutely true, but at the end of the day, it needs to be backed up by concrete policies that Labor Labor owns itself. Mm. Um, And that's been a, that's been a, persistent challenge for the Labor Party for, you know, I would say almost for its entire history, where they have, you know, they have people like Keir Starmer who can be very slick parliamentary performers, but whether they can come up with coherent, appealing policies that are, you know, solidly serve the interests of the majority of the population in the UK and they can get electoral support behind them, that's a whole other kettle of fish. So I think, yeah, I, I, I I wouldn't be paying to undue attention to how Keir Starmer goes in PMQs because the real test is going to be the policies that Mm. he supports. And in terms of the timeline for UK elections, where are we at in that cycle? Because obviously we did have very recently an election. So we're a long way off. The UK has five-year terms Mm. and they're they're five-year fixed terms. So if we count back, we wouldn't be, I mean, my maths is terrible, but in theory, we bar and we wouldn't be seeing an election until the end of 2024. And given the strength of Boris Johnson's majority coming out of that December election, I'd say that he's fairly secure, and all the Tory party at least is fairly secure for the long term. Yeah. Interesting. It is um, very concerning for a lot of people who are worried that the backlash or the economic whiplash from the coronavirus will lead to austerity measures, which the Tory governments of, of the past have not been really that hesitant in implementing. Do you think that's a real risk? I think I think it is a real risk. Um, firstly, because while Boris Johnson, you know, Boris Johnson, he'll go where where he sees power lying and where he, what, you know, he'll go with the option that is most likely to secure him in the prime ministership and that may well turn out to be austerity. I The thing I would be watching is what Rishi Sunak, the UK Chancellor, is 
saying and floating in the media and not necessarily his policies. So what the Tory party will often do is they'll kind of, they'll strategically leak a policy to test it out with the electorate and then that'll determine their course of action. Um, And there are signs in what they're doing there that they are looking at an austerity agenda at some point in the future. So for instance, there are a few stories a couple of weeks ago about how Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, he was going to start role rolling back the furlough scheme in the UK, which is their equivalent of what we had in JobKeeper. And there were these, you know, these extreme reports about how he was going to stop it in three months or he was going to roll it back to 60% of, of people's ordinary wages. That caused a lot of drama and people were, you know, were in uproar about it. So when Rishi Sunak came to make the actual policy announcement, it was he decided to extend that scheme. So I think they're going to continue testing the waters um, as far as austerity goes, and if and when they are getting the public reaction that they want, that's when they will pursue that line in policy. Mm, that's a really great tip for those watching UK politics. Just finally, Chloe, before we have to, to leave, I wanted to ask about Brexit because that didn't just kind of disappear. It is still technically a thing that um, that the UK voted for and that there is, I guess, an ongoing process to exit the European Union. And I just wanted to understand where we're at at the moment in that and whether things have progressed at all. Well, that's that's the trick. So it's kind of the, the, the negotiations have been continuing to go on, but obviously they're being impacted by by coronavirus in a, you know, in a serious way. Mm. But as of just as of just yesterday, so the UK has been kind of dilly-dallying on, on it. They're just, you know... They're not quite sure what they're doing. Um, but I think as of yesterday, the UK's chief Brexit negotiator, who's a guy called David Frost, he's actually told the, the EU that they have a two-week ultimatum um, to come to the table with a deal. Otherwise, the UK is going to, going to walk away from that and we will see that hard Brexit at the end of the year. That's pretty shocking. Mm. Oh, yeah. Look, and I think I think, you know, there's... Again, there's a difference between what's being said in the press and mm. what's going on behind closed doors. So I'd take Frost's ultimatum with a grain of salt. I it's think more at the of end of pressure. the day, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think at the end of the day they will come back to the table because mm. that's a a relationship where the EU absolutely has the upper hand. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, thank you so much, Chloe, for spending time with us today and giving us some really fascinating insights on UK politics. I really appreciate no, it. No problems at all, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.